Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Essentia is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Alice Lipscomb-Southwell, the Managing Editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. In this episode, I talk to Dr Jonathan Kennedy, a reader in politics and global health at Queen Mary University of London. He's just written a book, Pathogenesis, which explores the impact of disease on human history. He tells me about the close links between disease and colonialism, how infections shaped the migration of humans out of Africa, and what we can all learn from the COVID pandemic. Hello, my name is Jonathan Kennedy, and I'm an academic. My day job is at Queen Mary University of London, where I'm a reader. So that's a, a slightly archaic job title somewhere between senior lecturer and professor. And I'm reader in politics and global public health. And you've just written a book called Pathogenesis. So just to start off, can you explain to our listeners what exactly pathogenesis is? The book basically aims to transform the way that we think about history. Most histories see the the natural world as a kind of stage on which humans play out their, their roles. But I think, you know, if you look at science over the last few few centuries, the more we learn about the world, the more we learn that the natural world isn't just some inanimate stage. Um, in fact, humans are part of this massive system, an ecosystem, and we're, we're of course, a, a big part of that, but we interact with a variety of other animate and inanimate parts of this system, including infectious diseases. And so basically what pathogenesis, the book does, is it goes back through history and it looks at really quite a, a large number of cases from the extinction of the Neanderthals 
all the way up to, to COVID really to show how infectious diseases, pathogens have really played a crucial role in history, have really been a driving force in some of the major political, social and economic transformations in the past. And I think the first thing that really amazed me while I was reading the book is that the only reason humans don't lay eggs and we give birth to live young is because of a virus. Now, how could our evolution have been different if that virus had never infected us? Yeah, I mean, this this absolutely blew my mind because my background is in history and sociology. And, you know, I have always had an interest in in science. I studied biology and chemistry at A-level and I'm I'm married to a doctor and I teach in a medical school. So I do have an interest in in these things. But around about the time of the COVID pandemic, I started to read a lot more about microbes and their impact on humans and human evolution. And this was one thing that really, really kind of blew my mind. The idea that, you know, retroviruses reproduce by inserting their DNA into our genome. And if they manage to infect either our sperm or our egg cells, then these genes are passed on to all subsequent generations. So when you, when you look at the human genome, you actually see that something like 8% of all our DNA comes from these, comes from these infections. So it kind of raises some, some pretty, pretty crazy, crazy questions. But as you, as you said, humans have been able to acquire kind of wholesale from virus infections, various capabilities that we think as being fundamental to being human. So one of these is the ability to to give birth, because if we look at how the placenta binds to the womb, the, the cell lining is is very similar to the way that a virus would bind to a cell when it's trying to infect it. And this this makes sense in a way because you know it's really phenomenal that mammals are able to carry young inside their bodies. It's much, much safer than laying some eggs and leaving them somewhere and possibly being chased chased away but you know it also causes problems for the for the immune system because you basically have a genetically different parasite you know we could see see, see your, our young as a parasite growing inside our body so how do we avoid the immune system reacting and destroying this and this is only because we have inherited these genes from a viral infection that basically allows the the placenta to bind to the to the mother and there's there's other other examples of of capabilities being acquired from retroviruses too. So the other one that really, really struck me when I was researching for the book was the ability to form memories. So the way in which kind of memories pass from one one cell to another seems to be very, very similar to the way that um, viruses pass their their genetic information from one cell cell to the other. And it seems that this gene is inherited from another viral infection. And in fact, scientists have bred mice where they've removed this gene and the mice don't seem to be able to form to form memories. So yeah, it really kind of uh, I found that really really surprising as a layperson delving into the kind of science of retrovirus infections. Yes, we definitely tend to think of viruses as bad things, don't we? But in those cases, it seems that they've actually been really useful and have really shaped our evolution in that sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know, viruses play an enormously important role in the in the whole of the. The ecosystem. The, 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 there are viruses everywhere that there's life on the on the planet, basically. So someone once calculated that if you put all the viruses on Earth end to end, they would reach for a hundred million light years, which I find it hard to comprehend that as a distance. But um, most of these viruses aren't aren't infecting humans, um, aren't capable of infecting humans. Only about 200 or so are capable of infecting us. Most of these are so-called 
bacteriophages, so from the Greek to to devour. So they they eat eat bacteria. And in fact, again, it's another another fact that really really stunned me. But these viruses kill about. 20% of all bacteria every day. So they play a really important role in the natural world, basically maintaining balance and making sure that no one species of bacteria or no one strain of bacteria becomes too too dominant. And thinking about history a bit more here as well, one thing that was really interesting was that you said how disease could have kept Homo sapiens in Africa for longer and kept the Neanderthals in the Mediterranean for longer. And there was this sort of poison antidote effect where they couldn't really mix because they would end up getting ill if they did. And so that kept them in their sort of separate regions for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. Again, this was this was this was a really fascinating chapter to to write. And I guess, you know, it starts with one of the great mysteries of the Paleolithic era, you know, basically, if we go back to something like 60,000 years ago, the world was very, very different to the way it is today. Homo sapiens had perhaps been around for 150, maybe even 250,000 years, but we lived exclusively in the African continent. And there were a variety of other human species on the planet. So Neanderthals in Western Eurasia, Denisovans in Eastern Eurasia and a variety of other human human species in in Southeast Asia. So, I mean, I like to think about it almost as being quite similar to to Middle Earth, to you know, kind of Tolkien's Tolkien's world, where you you know you don't just have one species of human; you have all sorts of different human. And then all of a sudden, around fifty thousand years ago, this this changes. Homo sapiens burst out of out of Africa and really very quickly spread throughout the the whole of the so-called old world and even get as far as Australia and all other species of of human seem to seem to disappear and um, there's a variety of theories for why that why that is um, if we go to you know something like sapiens the the incredibly famous famous recent or not yeah not, not so recent book about the history of mankind the argument is that that our species went out because we were we were the wisest um because we were more intelligent and capable of kind of outcompeting other species of of humans which is important because neanderthals were were certainly bigger and stronger stronger than us but you know there are there are certain problems with this this theory um not least the last couple of years you know, there's been a lot of research that shows that Neanderthals are really seem to be, you know, kind of very intelligent and capable of all sorts of complex behaviors similar to our own species. So they appear to have produced some pretty basic cave art. They appear to have sailed between islands in the, the Mediterranean. They very clearly were able to cultivate fire. They even seem to have been able to use kind of medicinal plants to to treat various various kind of maladies. So this doesn't really make make sense. But the theory that that I think is most promising is that it was infectious diseases that that wiped out the Neanderthals. You know, I'm sure your listeners will know that certainly people of of European, Asian, and Native American descent have between two and four percent Neanderthal DNA in our genes. And I think it's really important to point out that the genes that we retained from Neanderthals are not just are not just random. They are genes that gave us an advantage or gene variants that gave us an advantage 
as we were migrating out of out of the African continent. And so some of these relate to skin and eye color, others to body hair, because obviously it would be a big challenge for, for our species having evolved for hundreds of thousands of years in Africa to, to arrive in, in cold, dark, dark Europe. But also a lot of these genes seem to be related to the immune system. And this, this makes sense because Neanderthals and Homo sapiens were perhaps separated for 500,000 years. Um, we lived in Africa. They lived in, in Western Eurasia. And they would have, we would have both evolved to survive in different disease environments and developed immunity to the pathogens that we came across in, in the areas that we, that we lived. And then, you know, when we first started to, to meet a hundred thousand or so years ago, this would have really kind of created a massive, a massive problem because certainly Neanderthals wouldn't have, have developed immunity to um, pathogens that we carried and, and vice versa. And so it's, Kind of a similar process to what we would see, for example, with the arrival of, of Europeans in the Americas, um, when it just devastated the indigenous population, when the population of the Americas fell by 90% within 100 years of the arrival of, of Columbus. It would have been something, something like that. But basically, as we know, we know now that Homo sapiens and Neanderthals interbred and exchanged, exchanged genes. And scientists call this the poison antidote model of adaptive introgression. And the idea is that when Homo sapiens and Neanderthals met, they you know, gave each other a poison because they would exchange pathogens that they didn't have, they didn't have resistance to. But also when they reproduced, they would provide each other with the, with the antidote because they would exchange genes. And so you know, they wouldn't have to evolve immune responses through the painstakingly slow process of Darwinian evolution by natural selection. They would gain these gene variants, you know, immediately through reproduction. And so this happened both ways, but the the reason why Homo sapiens won out was because we had evolved in tropical Africa. And even today, the closer one gets to the equator, the more of the sun's energy reaches the earth. And so this means that there's more vegetation there's more animals that feed on that vegetation, and there's more microbes that live on on the vegetation and the the animal life. So you you tend to get more and more deadly infectious diseases. Homo sapiens were able to overcome Neanderthal pathogens faster than the the other way around. So as soon as this happened, they managed to burst out of Africa and spread very quickly across the world. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! And you touched on it briefly there, and I know a lot of people will be familiar with the fact that when Europeans went into South America, then the native population just got wiped out, essentially. We brought all these uh, germs with us. So in what other ways is disease linked with colonialism? What are some other examples of that? Yeah, so I think it's really interesting to compare the the difference between the colonisation of the Americas and the attempt colonisation of the, the African continent. So Europeans colonized the Americas incredibly easily. You know, you see kind of Hernan Cortes, um, the Spanish conquistador, go to Mesoamerica in 
the early 15, 1520s and conquer this vast empire, the Mexica or the the Aztec civilization with about a thousand, a thousand troops and not just conquer it to kind of the Spanish ruled it for, for, for centuries afterwards. And then you see an even, even more remarkable incident 10 years later when Francisco Pizarro goes to the South American continent and conquers the, the great Inca empire that, that, you know, ran more or less the whole length of South America. And he did this with 168 eight troops. And traditionally, we've thought that kind of germs might have played a role, but also, you know, as Jared Diamond says, the conquest of the, the Americas by the Spanish would have been inevitable anyway, because we had better, better weapons and we had guns and, and steel. But I mean, I think this is really, really unlikely if we look at how much difficulty, you know, the American-led alliance had trying to really kind of achieve very modest aims in Afghanistan the last 20, 20 years. They sent 130,000 troops, the most advanced weaponry the world has ever seen. Um, they spent trillions and trillions of dollars and, you know, ultimately nothing, nothing changed. So I think we really have to challenge this hubristic idea that European society was was better developed and that's why we we defeated the indigenous populations of the America. It's very clear to me that infectious diseases were by far the most important factor. And if they hadn't acted as an kind of unwitting secret weapon, then the the European conquest of the Americas would not have been possible. And we can see this when we compare what happened in the Americas to sub-Saharan Africa. And you know, these days we kind of train to think of sub-Saharan Africa as a as a poor place, but in the Middle Ages, it was actually seen as very, very wealthy. It was the source of the vast majority of gold that flowed into into Europe. If you look at medieval maps like the Catalan Atlas, you see, you know, rivers of gold flowing through through West Africa. You see Mansa Musa, the Malian emperor, sitting on a gold throne and handing out discs of gold to Berber camel herders. And so, Europeans certainly coveted these natural resources. They wanted to to colonize Africa, but they, they couldn't manage. And, you know, a big part of that is the, the fact that, you know, we were part of the same trade networks. As I said, gold went over the Sahara to, to Europe. And so the same kind of old world pathogens that, 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 that infected Europeans um, and that Europeans had developed immunity to also affected the vast majority of the, of the African, African continent. But I think another important factor is the role of malaria and the role of yellow fever. And so this, I guess, kind of worked as a, a defensive force field that made it almost impossible for, for the Europeans to, to conquer West Africa. Even in the, in the 18th, 19th century, something between 40 and 70% of, of Europeans or European would-be settlers would die within a year of arriving in West Africa, mostly from from malaria. And if you go further inland to places like Mali, the, the death rate would be even higher. It'd be kind of 300%, which is hard to get your head around. But basically that means that you'd, on average, you'd survive for about four months before, before being killed. So the British at the time referred to the region as the white man's, the white man's grave. And I think, you know, often we forget that even as late as 1870, so that's centuries after the Americas were conquered. The vast majority of Africa was still 
independent. You had the French colony of Algeria in the temperate north, and in the temperate south, you had the the British and Dutch colonies in in what's now South Africa. Um, but the vast majority of the continent was not colonized, and it was only towards the the very end of the 19th century with the scramble for Africa that you have this colonization of of the region and this was made possible by quinine um, so Europeans had known about quinine for for centuries but they only began to use it systematically towards the end of the 19th century and this this lowered death rates to to a level that made the colonization of the of, of, of the African continent possible so how come the local population in Africa wouldn't have been as affected by malaria and yellow fever? Is it because they would have been exposed to these illnesses from a very early age and they would have built that immunity to it? And yet when European people went down there, they just didn't have that inbuilt immunity almost? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, the epidemiology of malaria and yellow fever are, are slightly different, but the outcome is the, the outcome is the same. So malaria killed and it still kills large numbers of, of, of young people in, in West Africa. Um, it still kills several hundred thousand young children a year. But if one's exposed repeatedly, then one's body builds up resistance. And so adults from the region have only quite minor symptoms when they're, when they're reinfected. Um, so malaria doesn't really seem to, like the impression one would get as a European traveling to, to, to West Africa and the in the 1500s or the 1800s would be that um, African adults aren't really affected by this. And with yellow fever, basically, if you're infected as a, as a child, you tend to get pretty minor symptoms. And once you've been infected, you are immune for life. But when you're infected as an adult, the symptoms are much, much more serious. And a third of people who, who develop symptoms will, will die. So again, you have the same, the same general effect that it would seem like it doesn't affect Adults that have have grown up in the in the West African region, but for the European would be settlers who were coming and being infected for the first time, they would die in in their droves. Now, one disease that many people will be familiar with is the plague. We learn about it in school. We know it appeared during the medieval times and also in the 1600s in London. But according to your book, it appeared much sooner than that in human history, like 5,000 years ago. I knew the the recent history of infectious diseases pretty well but you know it was something that that really kind of i was i was stunned by when i started looking at the latest research by scientists who have have kind of basically tried to extract dna from human skeletons and then not just identify the the human dna but also see what what kind of microorganisms were in the blood at the time that people people died, and that gives you a pretty good impression of what they what they would have died from. So, the earliest sample of plague bacteria is from about five thousand years ago in in Western Sweden. Um, so it was extracted from the dental pulp of of a five thousand year old skeleton. And I mean, this is fascinating in and of itself that we can we can kind of look so far back into the past and see what people were were dying from and people were getting sick from but i think what's really interesting is when we relate this to other kind of other facts and other sources of information and we can really build an idea of what was going on around this time so first of all we can compare this to other samples of yersinia pestis plague bacteria found in ancient skeletons across 
Eurasia. And we get this, this kind of impression that the whole of the the landmass was was affected by what might have been a really quite devastating pandemic about five thousand, four and a half thousand years ago. And it's also really interesting when you compare this with other sources of information. So we know that around this time, certainly in Western Europe, the population collapsed. So um, we know this from archaeologists who basically totted up the the number of archaeological finds throughout history and find a, a big slump around this time. We know this from scientists who have basically looked at peat samples and have worked out that around this time, you get far more seeds from wild plants than you do from domesticated crops. And so so this suggests that that around five five thousand, four and a half thousand years ago, there was perhaps a Neolithic Black Death that wiped out a large proportion of the population. And to add to this, some recent research that looks at the the kind of big migrations of humans coming into, into Western Europe demonstrates that around this time you have a really, really big change in the genetic makeup of the population. It seems like there was a, a big migration of herders from the Western steppe region who, who basically surged through the surged through the region. And this is really important because these Western steppe herders, they they seem to have brought Indo-European languages and they also account for a large proportion of the gene variants carried by particularly northern northern Europeans. So it's it's really incredible to think that we can still, if we walk around, you're in Bristol or I'm in London, if we walk around the streets, we can still see and hear the consequences of this of this plague epidemic that occurred five thousand years ago. So as a species, what can we do to ensure we survive the threat from diseases in the future? Well, I think it's it's really important to invest in science and technology. And, you know, certainly if we look at the speed at which a safe and effective vaccine or several safe and effective vaccines were, were developed during the COVID pandemic, this is really remarkable, um, even miraculous. But I think it's also really important to remember that science and technology on their own are not are not enough. We also have to look at political, social, and economic problems. If we, you know, if we think about the the COVID pandemic, for example, it seems like you know the initial spread in in China of COVID was inhibited by the secrecy of the Chinese Communist Party, so the lack of transparency. And then, if we look at the devastation that COVID caused in the UK and the US in particular, this was the the result of pretty bad decisions by politicians not to lock down at the right time um, to just let the virus rip through rip through the country. And we can also look at who was who was affected. And you know, not everyone was equally at risk of getting sick and dying from COVID. Certainly poor people and people from certain uh, minoritized ethnic groups were at much higher risk of of getting ill and and dying. And so I think we have to realize that the problem with COVID wasn't just the COVID virus. It was that our society had created a habitat through which the COVID virus was able to to prosper. And if we deal with these issues of poverty and lack of 
transparent government that really kind of helped the the, the COVID pandemic to thrive, then we can we can help avert um, a future pandemic as well. Thank you for listening to Instant Genius. That was Dr. Jonathan Kennedy talking about how disease has shaped human history. His book, Pathogenesis, is out on the 13th of April. The latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com. Thank you.